1: For all the times we didn't live up to our ideals, for all the times that we've made mistakes on the international stage, if if we get democracy right, democracy is stronger around the globe. And when we don't get it right, or we don't look like we care about it, others fill that gap.
0: This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. I recently interviewed President Barack Obama to talk about disinformation, what it is, how it threatens our democracy here in America and in countries around the world, and how it can be countered. The very tools that helped pro-democracy movements around the world and opened the public square to new and interesting voices are now used to disseminate disinformation, undermining our democratic institutions. Nowhere is the assault on democracy more evident at this moment than in Ukraine, where Vladimir Putin is attempting to demolish Ukraine's democracy and Ukraine itself. Throughout this aggression, we've witnessed the wholesale suppression of information, as well as the use of disinformation as an effective tactic of war. In this live conversation taped at the University of Chicago, I talked with President Obama about how we define disinformation and what to make of its weaponization around the globe. We started our conversation by talking about the war in Ukraine and the role disinformation plays in deceiving the Russian people. Before we go directly into the subject of disinformation. There's a lot to cover. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about Ukraine, where we are right now. And something that I think everybody here would appreciate uh, <clears throat> is the is the chance to hear you talk about this through the prism of your knowledge of Vladimir Putin. Um, you spent a lot of time with him, a lot of time grappling with him. Um, spend a couple of minutes, if you can, uh, explaining where we are and where you think this is headed.
1: Well, I... I It is a tragedy of historic proportions. That's not news to people here. You can see it. I think that it is calling the question about a set of trends around the world that we've seen building for some time. Putin represented a very particular reaction to the ideals of democracy, but also globalization, the collision of cultures, uh, the, the ability to harness anger and resentment uh, around a ethno-nationalist mythology. And what we're seeing is the consequences of that kind of toxic mix in the hands of an autocratic government uh, that doesn't have a lot of checks and, and balances. Um, I think it is also fair to say that it is a bracing reminder for democracies that, have gotten, that had gotten flabby and confused and feckless. Around the stakes of things that we tended to take for granted
0: you include rule our of, democracy in yes
1: that? rule of law freedom of press and conscience uh of the sort that you know one of your previous speakers uh, you know represents that that you have to fight for that information or you have to fight to provide people the information they need to be free and self-governing that it, that it doesn't just happen inevitably. Independent judiciaries making elections work in ways that are fair and free. We have gotten complacent. And I think that that I cannot guarantee that as a consequence of what's happened, uh, we are shaking off that complacency. I will say that as somebody who grappled with the incursion into Crimea and the eastern portions of Of Ukraine, uh, I have been encouraged by the European reaction because in 2014, uh, I often had to drag them kicking and screaming to respond in ways that we would have wanted to uh, see from those of us who who describe ourselves as as Western democracies. Um, In terms of Putin and where he takes this, there's been a lot of Uh, literature about this a lot of reporting about this I don't know that the person I knew is the same as the person who is now leading this charge he was always ruthless you witness what he did in Chechnya he had no qualms about crushing those who he considered a threat that's not new Um, for him to bet the farm in this way, I'm not, I would not have necessarily predicted from him five years ago. Um, how much of that is, a, you know, there have been speculation of the psychology of how much of that is him aging, him being isolated during COVID, et cetera. But I, as much as I think we, sh- we cannot count on sudden rationality from him, Uh, And as disquieting as uh, the absolute control of information within Russia makes me doubtful about any kind of grassroots or oligarch resistance to the current course of events, I think that what has happened in Ukraine in many ways is more remarkable than, or less predictable than than Putin
0: wanting to to seize terror. You mean the high level of resistance? The high level of
1: resistance, the degree to which you have somebody like a Zelensky responding to the moment. Um, Part of what changed between 2014 and today is is that I think a sense of national identity continued to fortify itself. Uh, And ironically, him lopping off at least informally annexing uh Crimean portions on the east i think clarified within ukraine who they were and what they stood for um and and i i also think the thing that he did not fully anticipate is is the degree to which uh the nature of war has changed where everybody is seeing exactly what is happening on a real time basis and and all those things i think may lead to, I won't say a, a happy resolution, but I think will uh, has the potential of preventing a maximalist victory for Putin. And, you, and that, over the long term, may allow for an independent
0: Ukraine. Two more quick things on this. Do you think that Ukraine can win by your definition of what win might be?
1: I mean, you look at these cities and you look at the populations and you look at the exodus, um, it's hard to describe that as a win. Um, and I think it's too early to tell what an end game looks like. Uh, I, I, I would not try to predict not only what's in the minds of Putin, but also how the Ukrainians conceive of this struggle because we are sitting here comfortably and they are going through heck. And, um, and I, you know, the, the one thing I try not to do is to project onto them what they should do, uh, how we should define what's tolerable, what the nature of their resistance should look like, how if negotiations proceed, uh, those should proceed. I think what we can do is support them and their efforts and their courage, and I think the other thing that we can do is is take this as a as a lesson that sadly they're paying the price for, but that that speaks to a much more uh, bumpy, difficult, violent, challenging future for the coming generation if we don't uh, get some things right here at home in Europe and uh, in Asia, in Latin America, because these are not, what's happening there is not isolated. um, What we're seeing is a reversion back to old ways of thinking about power and place and identity. And I think part of our complacency grew out of the notion that once the Berlin Wall fell and Mandela was released uh, and the world was flat and um, you had McDonald's everywhere. And now suddenly that was it and we were done. Uh, and, and we forgot that that post-World War II, 50 year stretch to 60 year stretch, that's the anomaly, right? Uh, and, and that there is millennia of brutality and pillage and violence and displacement and cruelty and, and, uh, and, and th- we, we created a set of institutions out of 60 million people dying in World War II and tried to reconfigure you know, how we might organize our societies, but it is not self-executing. Right, it's something that we have to continually, that we have to continually nurture and respond to new circumstances. Whether that's changes in technology, changes in globalization, climate change, all those things require us to say, "All right, what does that mean for our capacity to maintain human dignity and freedom and self-governance?" And that's the prism through which we should be examining these questions and being willing to modify, adjust, reform our institutions to keep up with that. And that's something that I think we have not done as well as we need to.
0: One last question on this. Um, Back in 2013, 2014, um, if you can go back and do things over again, would you have done more to work against Putin's uh, Ames and Donbass and Crimea um, you I remember you know you and McCain going at it at various points well I, I,
1: I actually don't because the circumstances were different the populations in Crimea certainly and their attitudes towards Russia were different which is why you did not have to have a, a, a full-scale invasion um, the East was more complicated And we had a very robust response that, as I said, required a lot of work with the Europeans in order to mount. Um, And Ukraine itself was different. I mean, keep in mind that you had just had essentially a strong man who was aligned with Putin. And we had had to intervene to prevent a massacre in the Maidan. The Rada still had elements that were Linked to the old order, um, and so for us to check at least his efforts for eight years, um, I think was um, was what we needed to do at the time. The notion that that we were also cons- we were also concerned about making sure that we did not give an excuse for a further incursion, um, and a lot of the arguments back then had to do with arming Ukraine, which in turn uh, could have uh, provided you know, those kinds of excuses and you had issues of training. Anyway, that, 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 if you ask me what I'm uh, most concerned about when I think back to the, towards the end of my presidency, uh, it probably has more to do with the topic uh, here today. It's something I grappled with a lot during my presidency. I saw it sort of unfold. And that is the degree to which information, disinformation, misinformation was being weaponized. And we saw it, but I think I underestimated the degree to which democracies were as vulnerable to it as they
0: were, including ours. Well, let me ask you about something notable that's happening in Russia, which is that despite somewhat porous internet, globalization, everything else, most Russians, from what we understand from reporting, seem to have very little idea that Ukraine is not the aggressor nation, that it's not run by neo-Nazis, um, and, and so on. And so my, my question uh, for you has to do with how do you break through to authoritarian regimes or populations controlled by authoritarians to give them your understanding of reality, democracy's understanding of reality.
1: Well, I, I, I don't think we have an easy solution. I, I mean, we have courageous journalists. You saw a woman with a handheld sign uh, go across the TV screen saying this is all a lie. And, and it, you know, that obviously got suppressed quickly. Um, here's one way to think about it, though. For all the flaws that may exist in... Uh, in our own society, you can get any information you want right now. It's in your pocket. Or some of you are taking pictures, so it's, it's right in front of you. Um, unfiltered, literally, there's nothing you cannot receive right now in this room. Um, and yet, in our society, you have currently um, roughly 40% of the country that appears convinced that the current president uh, was elected fraudulently and that the election was rigged. And you have 30% to 40, 35% of the country that has chosen not to avail itself of a medical miracle, Uh, uh, the development of a vaccine faster than anything we've ever seen before, which by the way now has been clinically tested by about a billion people, and yet are still refusing to, to take it despite extraordinary risks to themselves and their families. So if that's true in our society, imagine, you know how how we any of us would process information if if we are not getting if we're not seeing anything else right it 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 uh you know it's it i I have to be careful the reason I'm pausing is I'm about to tell a dad joke um <laughs> and so i'm sure my uh, my daughters if if they see this will roll their eyes but hey you know, it, it's it's like the old story of the old fish is swimming by a couple of young fish and yeah you know, mosey's Past him, and he says, uh, uh, "How's the water?" And uh, he keeps on swimming. And the, one of the young fish looks at the other and says, "What's water?" Um, and I think that that's how we that's how we are in terms of information, right? We we don't know what we don't know. We, we it's very difficult for us to get out of. Uh, Uh, the reality that is constructed for us. And and that is part of the reason why the stakes of this issue are so important, Um, because uh, it is difficult for me to see how uh, we, we win the contest of ideas if, in fact, we are not able to um, agree on a baseline of facts that allow the marketplace of ideas to work.
0: Uh, I want to I stay in this, and I want to sort of level set on some definitions. I just want to note for the record that that joke was 40% too epistemologically sophisticated to count as a dad joke, by the way. Um, All right, I, have, I have dad jokes we can do at, well, in, our, in our second hour, but um, <laughs> the... Um, Go to definitions. Yeah. Let's just start there. Right. What is the difference between disinformation? Uh, I'm going to asking you this as a retired politician um, who uses facts or used facts to your advantage, um, your electoral advantage. What's the difference between disinformation and information that's narratively inconvenient, let's say? How do you, how do you define disinformation, yeah, I, misinformation?
1: I, 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 and- I don't think the, the, the de- definitions are that tough. Uh, um. Misinformation is is just wrong information. And that's always been with us. We get facts wrong. We say stuff wrong. uh, And, you know, we're not going to solve for that problem uh, anytime soon the way I define disinformation is if you have a systematic effort uh, to either promote false information, uh, to suppress true information uh, for the purpose of political gain, financial gain, uh, uh enhancing power suppressing others, targeting those you don't like um, and 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 that i think is entirely different from information that uh is inconvenient I, you know if you're asking jeff uh but i'll use an example uh because i think it also shows that sometimes. We we get too cute about this, and and we're not operating on common sense. Um, uh, I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. I have a there's a <laughs> clipping there of me in the newspaper, dated 1961. I I walked by the hospital every day for you know for the first several years of my life. Um, and so, so that's an example. It, that wasn't an example of people being misinformed, right? There was an agenda behind that uh, promotion of what was clearly a false fact, right? Um, I, was, uh, I, I was identified as having engaged in a... Uh, uh, a political falsehood when I said, we, we just celebrated the Affordable Care Act uh, passage at the White House. Um, I wasn't milking, I wasn't looking to milk any applause, but um, but uh, during the run-up to passage, in a speech before uh, the AMA, I think, uh, I said that uh, and, and repeated several times that if you want to keep your doctor, you can. And the point I, we were trying to make is 85% of people had healthcare. care. One of the big problems in trying to get health care for the uninsured is making sure that folks who um, already had it didn't feel like, you know, scare tactics, weren't vulnerable to scare tactics, that they were all going to be rationed and socialized medicine and they'd lose their plan doctor. And we said, look, we're keeping the system for folks who have employer-based healthcare intact. Um, Once we passed it and we were starting to implement, one of the things that we had done is to raise uh, standards for what insurance could or could not provide because there was a bunch of phony insurance on the marketplace that uh, people thought they were purchasing insurance, but it turned out that when they actually got sick, there were so many restrictions to it, it didn't do them any good. And there was constant churn in this market. So uh, when people were up for renewal for these ultra-cheap insurance plans that didn't actually provide coverage, the standard we had set it turned out they couldn't renew because those plans were no longer being offered. Well, many mainstream reporters, not just uh, Fox News, uh, said, look, he lied. You lost your insurance that you had and you were perfectly satisfied with. I thought, well, I guess technically, it's true that you no longer had the plan you had because the bogus plans that you used to pay for that offered you no protection when you actually finally got sick, we regulated out of existence. Um, that was deemed as a as a you know I, I hadn't been accurate that, that was one of the few times during my presidency where. It, You know, everybody gave four Pinocchios on Obama. Um, That's an example of what can happen in politics. And by the way, although I promise you, I cursed a lot in the Oval Office when I read people saying that I had been mistruthful, or I I hadn't been truthful, because the basic principle I had laid out, I meant and was true, but I couldn't really complain about people criticizing me for it, and that's okay. But that's that was not a matter of us. Let me put it this way. Me saying that was not a threat to democracy. It was not you know, intended to somehow uh, subvert <laughs> democratic process. And because people could then criticize me for it, the democratic process
0: worked. That's how
1: uh, the... The marketplace is supposed to work in theory.
0: Can I can I ask you a, a a meta question? Not a not a Zuckerberg meta question. A meta meta question. No no no.
1: It, did it, did you, uh, how, have you have you been holding that joke for? Uh, no,
0: three seconds. <laughs> three seconds. Seriously, it just happens. It's spontaneous. Uh, no no no. The meta question is prompted by your your statement here. I'm wondering, given what you understand about the information environment, right. no one has been afflicted by the some negative aspects of, the, uh, of this current information uh, environment like you have, the birth certificate being one example. Um, you just kind of sort of admitted that maybe you didn't tell the whole truth or you, or you shared something that was inaccurate, um, and you just shared that publicly. Are you worried tomorrow that Fox News is going to say Obama, lo- Obama admits he lied about ACA or about keeping well, your own doctor. I am
1: now that you just said it that way. 'Cause that is I'm not, just, I'm not uh, trying let me to just like, be clear, that is and, not at all I uh, thought I was making the exact opposite point. Yeah. No This but, is this is how the press works, the, the, even in yeah. a democracy. Yeah. And by the way, even, to make even, it. even with award winning magazine editor.
0: No, that is to make it meta, meta, uh, meta. To make it meta, meta. Brian wait. Stelter is sitting over there already typing uh, how he's going to report on this meta moment.
1: That that is not the point I was making. I'm the just point asking. I was though, no, no, no. Was, I'm asking a serious question uh, about, and, and I'm and I'm I'm going to respond. The point I was making is is that that the, the the reason I brought up the the point is is that in a democracy there is going to there are going to be. Um, in the normal course of debate, we will contest uh, what's been said, what's been promised, what's been delivered, uh, and there will be some play in the joints in terms of, of how we interpret stuff. Right? I actually, to this day, believe that what I said was accurate, which is when you say you can keep your doctor, If your doctor dropped dead tomorrow, that is not the fault of the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) Technically speaking, you did not keep your doctor. You had to find a new one, right? So I was making a broader point, which is that systematically, we are not forcing you out of existing uh, uh, employer-based healthcare, which is what people at an aggregate level are concerned about. But, but the reason I told that story is to illustrate that, yes, there are still going to be disputes around what's true and false, even in a well-functioning democracy and a free press. That is okay. I was going to the point you were making, what's the difference between systematic disinformation, whether it's by the state or by product design on internet platforms, that are different in kind and are destructive in different ways and and, and uh, you know just just to go back to basics if, if if you think about our our constitutional design and obviously each each even each democracy has 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 sort of a different coding for how their democracy is supposed to work but in our design The the theory is You have First amendment You have freedom of Of speech Freedom of conscience Freedom of of The press And Everybody has a say And in that marketplace Then we're going to sort out What's true and what's false Or what's best for us How we act collectively And so forth In reality As we all know Some voices have been louder than others Some voices were excluded entirely But We did Come to a point. Let's call it post World War II, because prior to that, you know, sometimes we have a rosy, uh, uh, you know, nostalgia about the past, and you have Father Coughlin, and you have the McCarthy era, and you've got uh, the treatment of black people and brown people generally, and right. So, so uh, um, but but at least after World War II. You had enough of a consensus that we built both a set of standards within journalism and we built uh, a set of regulatory uh, guidelines that industries had to follow. Um, And it was possible then to have a debate between the left and the right in which we differed strongly on process or on substance, but we agreed on process. Let me- and what, is ha- what we've seen is a breakdown of that consensus and what we've seen is a shift in technology and who controls these platforms in ways that are not transparent and that has contributed to, aggravated, Uh, a sense in which we are no longer operating by the same rules or on the same facts. Uh,
0: I want to come to that because Maria Ressa talked very effectively about these questions about what the platform she did. Um, But let me, there's a story that you have told uh, over the course of your career. You wrote it. it. It was in the, it was in the volume one of your uh, autobiography. Um, <clears throat> when is volume two coming, by the way? Um, well, let's move on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's the story, it's a story, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an Iowa story but it's also a downstate Illinois yeah. uh, story. A, you talk about entering politics as a black politician, black democratic politician of Chicago with a, with a name like yours, getting a fair shake downstate. No, no, no yeah, And and, yeah, and I, I think it's, it's a, a great story and I think well, you should tell well, about I newspapers.
1: Th- I, I think it, 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 it speaks to the evolution of of press and, and information uh, and and how it reflects on on politics. Um and, and Axel Axelrod will remember this. Um, because he was let's face it, he was highly skeptical about the idea of me running for the US Senate two years after 9-11 9/11 with a name that rhymed with Osama. And I can't fault him for that. Uh, so I'm going down to downstate Illinois, and those of you who know downstate Illinois, it's conservative. It's rural. It is conservative. Uh, it 98% white, some of these counties. Um, and I drive around, and I... For, for you young people, there were these things called maps that you had to unfold and it was really hard to fold them back and, um, and you'd, so you'd swing into uh, a town and uh, uh, I'd typically stop we'd, we'd arrange for me to stop by uh, the local newspaper and usually you'd have sort of a stereotype but more than once bow tie crew cut glasses, um, look at you kind of skeptically, come on in, you want some coffee, would organize a little round table with the reporters. And you'd sit there and you'd answer questions and bat some ideas around and explain why you're running for the Senate. And typically the next day there would be a little article because these were small towns, so there wasn't much going on. So if even though nobody knew who I was, they'd still report on it. And they say, well, you know, this young man came down. Um, a little liberal for our taste. Uh, funny name. But he had some okay ideas. And he's, he's running for Senate. And that was the extent of the filter that I was dealing with. And so then I'm going to the fish fry or the VFW hall or the county fair. And... People might still be a little suspicious of a black civil rights lawyer from Chicago and whether they can connect with him. But I could get a fair hearing. There weren't a set of impenetrable assumptions about who I was. And as a consequence, I could win those counties, which I'd, I did. Um, and if I went there today, I could not. Now, let me take myself out of the equation because obviously I'm such an object of, you know people may have some fixed opinions at this point, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but someone like me going downstate or traveling through Iowa, they would have to work through a different set of barriers because that newspaper probably doesn't exist. It's been replaced, by the way, not just by Fox in every barbershop and beauty salon or Sinclair local news, but it's also been replaced now with digital community newsletters that are being manufactured, printed out and just pumped into these communities as local journalism has, has frayed. Um, and, and by the way, you know, I, I don't think there is a, a, Uh, an equivalence necessarily on the left and the right in terms of the media space. But I suspect it is also harder to get a hearing if you are a rural guy coming up to Chicago um, that doesn't check every box with respect to to certain issues. Certainly if you're a conservative Democrat, let's say, who is coming up here running in, in a primary. So uh, that, I think, is an indication of, of how things have changed. And, and, and by the way, th- there was just recently a, a report um, that confirms what I feel and what I've seen, and anecdotally, it's just one study that was done. Interesting study, though. They, they, f- um, they paid a pretty large cohort of Fox News watchers to watch CNN for a certain period of time. Uh, do you see this? And uh, um, it was, in, and and these are very hardcore conservatives, not not Biden voters, not central, you know, sort of swing voters. These were folks who watch Hannity and Tucker Carlson and so forth. And after a relatively short period of time, what what it showed was is that. Um, their views on issues Controversial issues like Immigration or police or vaccinations Had changed by 5, 8, 10% Just simply by changing their diet <laughs> It hadn't turned them into liberals it, it didn't make them want to vote for Joe Biden they had just had access to a different set of information and and, and so I, I I say that to suggest that um, I think we underestimate the degree of, of pliability in our opinions and our views, and what that means i I take that as hopeful not in the, not in the sense that um The divisions that we see in our democracy of race, of region, of faith, of identity, those are there. They are not creations of social media. They are not creations of um, any particular network. Uh, They're deeply rooted and they're hard to work through. But it does give me faith that if people are given different information, they can process Differently, And that the stories they tell themselves about who they are and their relationship to their neighbors, their friends, people who don't look like them, people who don't think like them, that those are subject to, um, uh, well, to, to quote Lincoln, you, you can either encourage the better angels of, of folks' nature or, or their worst. And democracy is premised on the idea that we can come up with processes, including how we share information and argue about information that encourages our better angels. And I think that's
0: possible. But we're staying on this newspaper question and journalism question, because this is not a natural disaster. I mean, yes, there have been unique pressures that tech companies have put on newspaper companies, but... Alden Capital, for instance. Yeah. You
1: guys, um, you, you guys did a great story about uh, a venture capital firm that uh, single-handedly scooped up and destroyed a whole bunch of newspapers uh, in this country so for, for profit.
0: It's a man-made disaster yeah. in some cases. What is your specific recommendation about this this? These news deserts that have been created across the country, and we could you could fold in the tech companies. Yeah, and their why, responsibilities, why, why, why,
1: why don't I? Why don't I step back just for a second and and maybe just share a couple of assumptions that I have, uh, you know, in the interest of uh, uh, this transparency. Um, number one, as I said, I I don't think that our media companies are tech companies, social media created the divisions in our society. But I do think that what has happened in our media ecosystem is exacerbating and making democracy more difficult. Number two, um, I am close to a First Amendment absolutist. I believe in the idea of not just free speech but also that you deal with bad speech with good speech that you engage um that 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 the exceptions to that are very narrow um and 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 you know particularly uh, among this cohort of folks in college and I've talked to my daughters about this um you know I don't want us to be such a society of manners that like we can't we, we feel like our feelings are hurt and we can't hear something that uh somebody says and and we wilt uh I think uh, I want us all as citizens to be in the habit of being able to hear stuff that we disagree with and be able to answer with our words um Number three, I think that duplicating the consensus that we had post World War II, and you had three TV stations, and you know newspapers uh, in every major cities, in some cases like Chicago, multiple newspapers, um, and an FCC, and all that—I think that's hard to duplicate. Not just because of technology and the proliferation of content, but also because of the internationalization of content that makes it more difficult. Um, and number four, I'll, let's stipulate that there is no such thing as perfectly perfect objectivity, right? New York Times, you know, uh, obviously chooses which stories to write and which reporters to hire, and they have certain perspectives that. <laughs> you know, reflect itself in their newspaper in even ap and and reuters and and upi same thing but along with that i would also argue that there are there's things that are more true and things that are less true that a the the, the basic ideas of checking sources and having multiple sources and Fact checking and not reporting things that you just somebody just popped off and heard, Uh, and the value of uh, expertise and science that those things are important, right? And that I you know um, there's there are some areas that are not subject to fact checking, and those are things. We call opinions or faith <laughs> or belief. and and those are important too. Those speak to our emotions, but that is different from what in the public square we're supposed to be um, at least fi- being able to find agreement on. so if if I stipulate all that stuff, then then what I would say is that um, the the loss of journalism or, or local journalism, the nationalization of uh, sort of a grievance, anger-based journalism, uh, the growth of social media and technology whose product design monetizes anger, resentment, conflict, division. And... uh, in some cases, makes people very vulnerable. Right? It, it, this isn't just words, but can lead to violence. And you know, and it's not just you know the Rohingya uh, in uh, Myanmar. Uh, it's not just um, uh, you know in, in some far off place, right? But but can if if you are a a uh, a woman if you are a person of color, if you are a trans person right now in certain parts of this country, what's said matters. Uh, and what you now have is is these product designs that are, and I think this was already said by Maria and others previously, um, in a non-transparent way that we don't have much insight to, uh, a series of Editorial choices are essentially being made That uh, Undermine our democracy And Oftentimes when combined with Any kind of Ethno-nationalism or Misogyny or racism Can be fatal Um, and, And that is The media ecosystem that We now are Occupying and the good news is, I actually think that it is, uh, at every juncture, every time you've had a new media, we've had this kind of churn, and then we've come up with rules to try to figure out how do we fix it. But in order to fix it, we're, we are going to have to have at least a consensus about what's our North Star? What is the thing, the the guiding principle around which we fix it? And and and. My concern is right now that at least uh, a portion of the country uh, either isn't interested in fixing it or uh, disagrees with what I would think our North Star should be, which is, do we have a free self-governing society based on democratic principles?
0: Let me ask a, a self-described near First Amendment absolutist, how would you very specifically want to regulate social media companies um, to make sure that they're not privileging anger, privileging division and polarization through their algorithms.
1: So, we, so we've got a supply issue and we've got a demand issue for uh, toxic information. Right. Um, and on the supply side, I do think that the tech companies are going to be increasingly the dominant players. Uh, They are private companies, which means that uh, they are already making a range of decisions about not just what is on or not on their platforms, but also what gets amplified and what does not. And I think it is reasonable for us as a society to have a debate and then to put in place a combination of regulatory measures and uh, industry norms. Uh, that leave intact the opportunity for these platforms to make money, but say to them that there, there's, there's certain practices you engage in that we are not, we don't think are good for our society and, and we're going to discourage. And so, a, a specific example would be um, there's been a lot of debate around Section 230. I don't know that entirely eliminating Section 230 protections from liability uh, is necessary. I certainly think that providing Section 230 liability for paid advertising uh, that is micro-targeting certain groups and we have no transparency into, that that's not serving any uh, particular uh you know uh benefit in terms of startups or innovation or so forth um, and and that can be really uh damaging so so I think that we have to have a set of debates around that uh, and there are smarter people than me who are working on this uh, the issue of anonymity and the distinction between bots and humans (laughs) or, or, or bot farms and people who actually have opinions are there ways of sorting that out in some circumstances it's important to preserve anonymity in terms of so that there's space in repressive societies to discuss issues but as as we've all learned it's a lot harder to be rude obnoxious cruel uh or lie uh, when somebody knows you're lying and knows who you are. Um, and, and I think that there may be modifications there that can be made. So, so look, we, we, uh, the one thing that's interesting, if you look at, for example, Facebook's response or Twitter's response or YouTube's response post-January 6th, they made a point of saying, well, we responded in by doing a whole series of things. Some of which then were reversed after the heat was off. Them, which tells me that they at least appear to have some insight into what's more likely to prompt insurrectionists, white supremacists, uh, you, know, uh, you know, misogynists, uh, behavior on the internet, bullying behavior on the internet—they—they they seem to know what it is, and I'm less interested in them in. And to in in fairness to them, many of them will acknowledge we don't want to be policing, er, er, uh, you know, everything that's said on the internet. But they, what they're—they haven't been forthcoming about is what their product designs are, and there are ways in which a democracy can rightly expect them to, uh, to show us. If not us, then a group of researchers. If they have proprietary concerns, uh, that, that can be managed. But to show us in the same way that on any other product, like I, I don't know exactly how uh, you know, the inspections on meat are done you know and and if if somebody says, "Well you know we have a proprietary technique to keep our meat clean, that's fine. Take it up with the meat inspector. That's not my job. We can figure out how to the same thing with cars, the same thing with toasters uh th- this notion that somehow we have to preserve this information to our you know ourselves because somehow um we have a proprietary interests. I, I think that's wrong. Now, that's on the supply side. I do think that there's a demand for crazy on the internet that uh, that we have to grapple with. And you know, um, part of the reason I'm spending more time thinking about this through the foundation is because um, I work with young people from across the country and around the world who are working on climate change, racial justice. You know, you know, uh, our, our goal in the foundation is to train the next generation of leaders and give them platforms and connections and, and make sure they're not isolated and that they're learning from each other across borders and um, regions. And uniformly, they're all confronting these issues about, how do I deal with misinformation in in my country, in my town? How do I get access to the public so that they know the facts that are affecting their lives about pollution or uh, about how budgets are being distributed and so forth. Um, And one of the things that that they were learning is that um, they are hungry for a voice and for participation, but we haven't done a very good job in training this next generation to participate other than virtually and in a fairly shallow way. And and part of, you know, there have been interesting studies sh- showing that the, the single biggest predictor of whether you're a regular voter, et cetera, is did you participate in student council, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. And and that's true for young people, it's true for all of us. Um, the mediating institutions that used to lead us to be able to practice being involved and, and learning how do we debate and how do we vote and how do we then see results from collective decisions that we make. We're gonna have to figure out ways to adapt that to virtual platforms, because that's where people are gonna meet and that's where people are gonna be. Um, and that may mean different ways of civic education, criti- uh, teaching critical thinking, finding better tools for participation uh, on the internet, and, and that's all on the demand side. Um, the good news is, is that we're seeing a lot of experiments being done. They just haven't been done to scale, which is why as, as wonderful as it is to see exercises in virtual democracy developing in various countries, in, in towns, um, ways to get people to listen to each other and work together. We can't ignore the mega platforms that are out there because they're still dominating the space.
0: Um, let me, uh, you know, over the past couple of days, we've collected some questions for President Obama. Um, and I want to throw what? two quick ones at you and then a a final question, uh, a Maria Ressa-inspired question for you from me. Um, this is from Ann Moss here at the University of Chicago. <clears throat> was there a moment in your presidency you can identify when you or your advisors came to realize that social media itself posed a threat to American democracy? What was it? Well, was there a hinge moment when you just went, oh, what is happening here? Um,
1: well, I... Uh, <laughs> I uh, it's weird to remember that the smartphone came out in 2010. I mean it's been 12 years since this ubiquitous yeah you know, thing came out. Um and so it, for us what we saw was a I think you can draw a direct line during our campaign, Sarah Palin, um, birth, birtherism, um, death panels. Uh, it, there, there was there, what's been called truth decay, right? There, there, was a, there was an erosion of what was considered acceptable to assert in the press period that's all pre-social media. So what I, what I did see was, I think, a a uh, er- erosion of accountability norms and standards um, in accelerated in, in in political life. And then, when social media hits, uh, then I think that uh, you saw it spread and accelerate. But um, I wouldn't actually, or I wouldn't say that uh, even by 2012 that social media was the main carrier. I think it was actually in my second term um, that you start seeing uh, not just bad information, but you also start seeing an acceleration of, 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 uh, of misinformation. And by 2016, that's when... I think it, uh, well, we know what happened.
0: No, tell us. what. No, please. What, uh, yeah. Uh, One more question. Uh, this is from Connor Lee, who's a student here at the University of Chicago. Uh, you've, you've sort of touched on this, but it might be worth dilating on it for a second. What is your advice to young people who seek to play a part in protecting our elections and curbing the effects of disinformation on those elections?
1: Well, I, I think young people are going to have to help us reinvent uh, for a primarily uh, virtual uh, social media space, uh, the same kinds of rules, norms, practices, processes that existed before, and I think that's going to—I that, think that's going to take a while. Um, but but you are going to have a better idea of what works and what doesn't, to encourage veracity, accountability, um, the ability to listen uh, to people who you don't agree with, to create those spaces. Um, and and so you know through the foundation and other institutions, we're, we're really soliciting from young people ideas and trying out a bunch of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think this is going to be, it's going to take some time. Uh, I, I don't think this is a, there are no silver bullet solutions to this. And I don't think that it's going to, uh, be solved in, um, in a year or two years or four years. I think this is building up the habits, the muscles of democracy that have atrophied is going to take some time but but i'll i'll close with what i said before if you if you ask me how i'm going to sort through what are a genuinely a set of genuinely difficult questions technological questions free speech questions uh, you know how how do we encourage citizens questions if you ask me what's my guiding principle My guiding principle is, does this make our democracy stronger or weaker? And when I say democracy, I don't just mean elections. Does this make uh, a multi-racial, vast, diverse country more likely to work together and to affirm basic notions of fairness, process, Um, truth uh, or uh, is it sending us in the reverse direction of tribalism uh, you know resentment anger division Uh, and uh, and so that's that's the that's what I'm thinking about that's what I'm working on and the reason uh, that it's important for us to get this right You started with Ukraine, I'll end with Ukraine um, This is an international trend And the, uh, the one thing I w- I'm here to report on About America Is For all the times we Didn't live up to our ideals For all the times that We've We've um made mistakes on the international stage uh, or or uh, been hypocritical in terms of how we applied our uh, faith in democracy um, if if we get democracy right, democracy is stronger around the globe. And when we don't get it right, or we don't look like we care about it, others fill that gap. Um, People, even our enemies, recognize that what happens here, if we can make a democracy function where you look at this room, and you've got people from every corner of the globe every racial group every ethnicity every religion every culture that if we can figure out how to live together and treat each other with dignity and respect then it, then others start feeling like well maybe it's possible in our place uh, in our country too and when we look like we have abandoned those ideals or we 're not willing to fight for them robustly then around around the world, people start saying, "See, that was always a pipe dream and and the Putins of the world um have a much easier time
0: so uh There are a dozen other subjects to talk about, but we're well out of time. And um, just a a reminder that we're meeting here again at nine. We have an amazing program tomorrow and I want you all to come. But uh, in the meantime, uh, please join, uh, on behalf of David and the Institute of Politics, on behalf of The Atlantic, please join me in thanking President Obama for his time today.
1: Thank you everybody. This episode was produced by Kevin Townsend and Rebecca Rashid, with help from Emily Gotchak Marconi. Our executive producer is Claudina Bates. If you value what we're doing here at The Atlantic, please consider subscribing. You can watch the full coverage of the event at theatlantic.com/disinformation-conference. A special thank you to the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics.